0: Good morning, It's going to be back with you. Uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4, uh, but also uh, go ahead and, and turn over to the prophet Joel, chapter 2, now we really need to look at all of Joel, but we can't, uh, but it's um, chapter 2 verses 28 and following. So really chapters 2, 28 through through 3. And I'm going to I'm going to spend a little bit of time there because I think it's very important uh, for this um, to understand this parable. It, it's quite interesting to me that that you have within each of each one of these parables, you have one little echo, sometimes more than one little echo, but you have one little Little quotation, or not even a quotation of a whole verse. They won't necessarily even quote the whole verse, but maybe just this, just this little snippet from one verse uh, within the the Old Testament scriptures. And that then is the key to unlocking the understanding of this of this uh, this parable. And if you if you don't if you don't chase those down, if you don't look for them, you end up. Kind of importing or laying upon these parables some other type of meaning that, that may be true in some biblical sense, but is not the point of of the parable. And uh, so, we're going to look today at um, there are actually two more seed parables in chapter four, Mark chapter four, uh, verses 26 through 34. I don't think we will get to the mustard seed parable, uh, which is right at the end. But we'll look at this first one, which is uh, 26 through 29. So chapter 4 of Mark, 26 through 29. So we have, uh, we have this additional seed parable. I'm going to read it in just a moment. Uh, that, that has to be viewed within the same framework as the sower uh, seed parable. Similar in a, within a similar framework. We've already seen that at the beginning of chapter 4, the seed parable, uh, the sower parable, had opened up this, this large section of, of parables. And it, it's at the front of these parables for a, for a reason. Uh, it is basically introducing the, the timing of the kingdom of God. So within the, within the ministry of Jesus himself, within, within the ministry of as it's presented within the Gospel of Mark, these uh, these parables are at the front front end of his ministry. He's already begun to do a few things, uh, but he's already and he's already experienced some rejection. Uh, the uh, the scribes who have come from Jerusalem have, have committed the <clears throat> the unpardonable sin. They've rejected the Holy Spirit. They've attributed to uh, to uh, Jesus the or, or to Satan Jesus's works. They've committed that that sin, but really this is like right at the beginning of his ministry. And, and he, after this initial rejection, he begins to speak to them in parables, and the, the sower and the seed parable kind of opens up this, this section. He begins to, he, he, along with this, you also have within the story the disciples being prepared for their mission. Right, so it's not just it, it's not just about the mission of Jesus as he is, he is proclaiming the kingdom. It is that the disciples too are being prepared for this kingdom mission. We, we have within the gospel, um, an interesting the interesting statement that uh, right at the end of of the sower and the seed parable, where he says that he he continued to explain the meanings of these parables to the, um, to the disciples privately, but to the rest of the people they did not get that explanation. And then we get that one explanation of what the seed, the sower and the seed parable is about, but we don't get any more explanation either, which is quite interesting. right? Why, why not give the audience who's reading this book the answer to these parables? But he doesn't. But he puts just enough in there so that we can search out uh, via, the, uh, via the text. I mean, we have to use the text. We can search out and dig for ourselves to find out what the meaning of these parables um, is. Uh, anyway, it's just interesting to look at this book as a book and say, well, why didn't, if, if he's writing to um, a, a group later on, why didn't he give us the explanation of these parables? He leaves us in the dark just like he does the Jews that he's speaking about, right? That he's hardening. It, it's as though the audience has to put themselves uh, within one crowd, right? You have to pick your group. You, you pick who you're gonna be. Are you gonna be those uh, to whom he speaks about hardening? right? Are you going to be the ones who are hardened? Are you going to be the ones who really search out the meaning of these parables and find out exactly what's going on here? and then get on board. These parables, uh, these two parables here have changed the focus slightly to the nature of the kingdom. Uh, first, its growth. So we're going to look uh, today a little bit about its growth, but it's complex. It, it's very difficult to just pin down one, uh, one real broad meaning of these, of these parables. So in 26 through 29, though, I've tried to do that, and I say, well, it's, it's about the growth of the kingdom. It's being compared to uh, a man who's sowing seed, and then uh, at the end, he comes in and gets a harvest. It's very short. And then 30 through 32 looks at the size of the relative size of the kingdom, and the, it's compared to a mustard seed that then grows into a tree. But hidden within these, um, is I think the clue to unlocking what, what they mean and I'm not talking about some, some kind of something that only a TV evangelist can, fu- you know, can figure out I mean, it, it's something that you can figure out if you, if you read and you, you think on these texts and think about how, they're, how, how Mark is using the prophet Joel because that's what he's doing in this first one and then later he's, um, how Mark is using Ezekiel and Daniel this is really the key to, to unlocking them. These, these little short uh, parables are not focused on the inner workings, per se, of how the kingdom is going to work, but those will be nothing short of miraculous, especially in light of its small beginnings. And this is part of what is, what is hinted out in these parables, is that, look, here in, in Palestine, you have one man... And you have just a small group of followers, and this is going to turn into the kingdom of God. I mean, can you believe that? This is, this is truly miraculous. What makes, what makes uh, the question for us then is, what makes all these different descriptions of the kingdom necessary? So within these parables, you get, you think about a parable as, as being a comparison. Because that's really what it is, it's saying something is like something else. And then you have to figure out how is it like something else, right? How is the kingdom like this? How is the kingdom like that? And then he will then give you clues to, to figure that out. Now, what makes all these different descriptions necessary? Since the scriptures, and by the scriptures I mean the Old Testament, since they have talked about the kingdom in many different ways, such as, as we've seen already in Mark, the return from exile, So at the beginning of Mark, the returning from exile is a way of describing the kingdom of God coming. This theme is very prominent, uh, and it's something that we'll see in in the upcoming class as we we look at the Pentateuch. This this framework of of exile and return from exile is built into the Pentateuch. It's also described in, in, say, Daniel as a stone that becomes a mountain and fills the whole earth. And you think, well, that's a really strange image uh, for the kingdom of God. A stone that becomes a mountain that then fills the whole earth. It's a strange image. In other places, um, as we'll see probably be next week, a tree for the birds to live in and the beasts to take shade under and to live their lives under. Beasts and birds living under a tree, and that's the picture of, of the kingdom of God. It's also compared to a wedding banquet without fasting, but with lots of merrymaking. It's also described as a temple with priests. Think of a kingdom kingdom of priests. This is a way of describing the kingdom of God. It's priests working within a temple. This is very interesting, that, that the kingdom of God would be described as priests within a temple. But because of all these, mul- the, these multiple descriptions of what the kingdom of God is, it becomes necessary to have multiple angles on the kingdom itself. In other words, simply saying that the kingdom of God is here does not do justice to the multiple ways its coming is described in the scriptures. And when you can't put something into words, you tell a story to illustrate it. right? So kids ask, ask what, what a certain word means. What do you do? Do you give them a long definition? Not usually. If you can, you do, but usually you say, well, it's like this word, but not in this way, right? Because they're, very, they're near synonyms within, within language that you'll say, well, it's like this one, uh, it's like this word, but it's not exactly, and it's not like this word in these different ways. Well, these parables basically do the same thing and so if you if you can't put something into words and say specifically what it's going to look like you tell a story about it and this is what from different angles this is what happens it's part of what's going on here here again we must keep in mind what has already been said in the parable of the sower the timing and the mysterious plantings and the receptions were described the sower who is god sows, sows the word in four different plantings three are successful uh, three are unsuccessful, and the fourth one produces fruit. As we saw, it is successful. If anyone were under the impression that uh, that everyone would simply fall in line with the king's uh, the king's conquest of the land, which is actually what's happening in the, in Mark, uh, they were they were mistaken. Right? If if this king comes forth, or if the sower comes forth and he's sowing seeds, um, he's basically what Jesus is saying in that parable is that. There's a sowing going on right now, and the reception to it is going to be lopsided in some way. There's going to be this, this fourth sowing is going to be successful, but three of these are not, right? which is the way seed works anyway. Right? You, throw, you throw a lot of seed out, and not every one of them grows, but this is, this is what he's saying with it. Most people would not accept the word that God was sowing, but would produce bad fruit. However, after some false starts, the kingdom of God is coming. God's true seed is being sown, and it's going to be successful. The next two parables, 26 and 29, pick up uh, in 30 through 32. Pick up thematically with the sower parable, but they're preceded what Pastor Rob brought to you last week. These two, the lampstand and the measure, they move on to the kingdom's purpose. Number one, to bring to light all things that have been hidden about the kingdom. And number two, they contain a warning that we should pay, the readers and and also the people in the narrative, should pay close attention to the message and take it and use it, lest what they have be taken away. That's the warning of the preceding parable. We then shift back to these two more seed parables. 26 through 29, let's read it. Uh, Verse 26, and he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man would scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And that's it. What exactly is new about this parable that wasn't mentioned in the sower parable? What is new? There's a lot of sowing going on in this whole chapter. What's the difference in this instance? The difference, I would argue, is in the image behind the image. It's it's like this. Let's say that we had a famous famous artist would take a, a painting of someone else and use that as their background to create a different painting. And if you were to, if, if the artist were to point it out, he'd say, well, I took this Picasso, and, and I, I made my painting out of it. Can't you see it there, right? You can see the, the Picasso behind it. You can see this painting that serves as the, the backdrop, uh, the background for this new painting that comes out of it. I think that's what's going on here as well. Where we have the new painting, which is the parable of the seed growing, inconspicuously. Uh, the guy rises uh, night and day, doesn't pay any attention really to his um, his sowing, and then up comes this crop. The canvas that he has used is the book of the prophet Joel. So he has this, he has this image that he starts with and that is the image that the prophet Joel gives and he takes his own image and he, he creates it out of what the prophet Joel has said. I think that's, I, I don't know exactly how to explain what's going on here but I think that's, that's kind of what it is. The specific allusion in the text is to Joel 3.13 but the whole of Joel seems to be the background for this particular parable. And that's why he can do it, right? Why would you give a little parable like this and, and never give any explanation? Right? He, gives it to the, he gives it to the disciples, but, but he hides here this little snippet from Joel. Not even the whole verse. 3.13. What is Joel about? Joel is about the day of the Lord and all that that entails. Now, if we, if we come to this text, if we come to the book of Joel, let's say, and we approach it in kind of an overly literal manner, as many have done in the past, we will miss what Jesus and Mark have actually said about the, about the ministry of Jesus. Because of our ideas about what it means to fulfill scripture, we will, look up, we will end up uh, pushing the fulfillment of Joel and of Mark out into the future. And we will minimize what actually is happening in Jesus's ministry, and this is what I want to to bring want to bring out. What is being said in in the book of Joel is that the day of the Lord is coming. Okay, and and by Mark's use of the of the book of Joel, he's saying the day of the Lord has arrived. Okay, you say, well, it doesn't look like it, and I say we're understanding it a bit a bit too wrong. We're, we're a bit uh, overly literal. It's not like the day is, is that single day and that's it. It's that this, the, the day of the Lord has been inaugurated, right, and it is upon us. It, it came upon us in the coming of Jesus, and this is what Mark is getting at. Let me illustrate with a more obvious example from Joel. In Acts chapter 2, verses 17 and following, you're probably familiar with this, um, this sermon from Peter. Peter says that Joel 2, 28 through 32, and likely the whole thing, is now underway at Pentecost fulfilled. He quotes from Joel, he says in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men will see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. And he quotes this whole section and he says, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes. The great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And you say, well, part of that's true, but part of it's not, right? We haven't seen, we haven't seen the um, the sun turn to darkness and the moon to blood, so it can't have happened. So, so we then we pull apart this text and we say, well, part of it's fulfilled and part of it's not. And I say, it's not how the, that's not how these texts work. He he is he is saying that in Pentecost, in the coming of the Spirit, this prophecy is fulfilled. Right? This is it. This is the day of the Lord, and it has been inaugurated in Jesus, and and the Spirit is now being poured out upon all flesh. Uh, I I really think that that we have we have made these texts say things in, in order to in order to say well, let's look forward to the future. We've made these texts say something uh, that, they, uh, that they're not meant to say. We've read them in, in a different manner than they should be. Okay? So this seems to be obviously fulfilled. Right. And Peter's Peter basically quotes this and he says, uh, men of Israel, hear these words, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And he goes on to say, look, this is fulfilled in your hearing. Right? This is this is the day of the Lord, and it has come, and the Spirit of God is, is testimony to that. It's being it's being poured out upon all flesh. Okay, so I submit that we should uh, we should treat these prophecies a bit differently than they than they have been, uh, including this one that we'll see in in Matthew, uh, in Mark, uh, where he's quoting Joel. What Peter is saying here in Acts is that Joel has been fulfilled signified by the outpouring of the Spirit on, on people from many nations. We might say, well, we might look at Acts and we might say, well, the Native Americans weren't there, so it hasn't, the Spirit hasn't been poured out on all flesh. But that would be to ask too much of these texts, right? It would be to ask too much. He goes to great lengths to show there in Chapter 2 that people, f- representatives from a, a great many nations were there at Pentecost and they experienced the outpouring of the, of the Spirit. What matters here is the broader trajectory of, of, of the text and what is, um, uh, what is being said in, in general. The canvas of the old painting was visible in the new one. The fact that this is not always clear, the connection between prophecy and fulfillment, is pre- precisely why the proclamation of the kingdom, our pro- proclamation, and Peter's preaching about Pentecost was and is so necessary. It's not completely obvious that what was spoken of in the scriptures was the same thing that was happening in Jesus' ministry and into the ministry of the apostles, right? So Jesus comes on the scene, and he's doing these things, and he's saying, listen, guys, the the, the scriptures are being fulfilled. And without that interpretive uh, framework, a lot of people would have missed it, right? He's constantly bringing this to the attention of the disciples and saying, do you read the scriptures this way? This is how you should read the scriptures. This is being fulfilled in your hearing. So it's not completely obvious sometimes, and those uh, to whom it is clear, they will receive the kingdom. For those uh, to whom it is not, they will not. Okay. Two-hour parable. The kingdom will, once again, be like a sower sowing seed, but this is not the heart of the parable. This is the vehicle by which the good and the bad news of the kingdom of God, seen in Joel as the day of the Lord, is announced. Good news to those who see, bad news to those who scoff at it. The center of the parable is not all good news, right? This has already been the case in Mark. It's not all good news. Jesus is hardening some for judgment. It is bad news for them, and at the same time, it is full of hope for those who accept it. In 28 and 29, we get the imagery of the sowing season that comes to a harvest. The earth produces by itself, first the blade then the ear then the full grain in the ear but when the grain is ripe at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come it is precisely here that we see the vestiges of the old canvas of Joel shining through the new painting of this parable let's look at Joel 2:28 i'd like to i'd like to look uh, this is, is going to be a little bit tricky but open to Joel 2:28 and then i want to compare twenty eight through 3 two with uh, chapter 3 12 through 17 because within the Book of Joel you have a repetition of some major themes and I think this is what what Mark is is really pointing out now what we will see is this in Joel the defeat of the nations the armies that have that uh, have sent God's people into exile will be defeated. God will gather them together and judge them in the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, keep in mind that Jehoshaphat means the Lord has judged. So the the name itself may may be somewhat symbolic. Number two, in those days, it says, in that In that section, in those days and in that time, God will bring back the captivity of his people, of Judah and Jerusalem. So we've seen already in Mark that this is the beginning of the new coming out of exile for Israel. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. This is a remnant of survivors who will escape the judgment. We have two somewhat parallel sections in Joel that seem to reflect one another. And I'll try to summarize both parts and explain how they reflect one another. So in 2.28 and 2.29, we have uh, the Lord pouring out his spirit on all flesh. Verses 30 and 31, there are wonders in the heavens. The sun turns to darkness, the moon to blood before the day of the Lord. Number three, in verse verse. Uh, 32, Joel 2.32, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, will be delivered. And these, it, it turns out, are survivors who have, have fled from something. They're survivors. Chapter 3, verse 1, in those days and in that time when I restore the captivity of, of Judah and Jerusalem, uh, this, this is what this time is going to be. It's going to be the restoration of Israel. He'll restore the the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem. And then number five, which is in chapter three, verse two, I will gather all the nations to the valley of Jehoshaphat and judge them on behalf of my people whom the nations have scattered among the nations. So this is describing the return from exile like we have already seen in Mark that Israel is in some way going to return from exile. Now, we're still looking out for what this is going to look like within the book of Mark, but this is the promise. This is, this is what is said about Jesus. He is going to bring his people back from exile. This is somehow going to coincide with the judgment of the nations. And th- this, is what, this is what Joel is getting at, and I think this is what the parable is getting at as well, that somehow this return from exile of Israel is going to coincide with the judgment of the nations. Now, if we compare chapter 2 28 through chapter 3 12 through 17, let's look at it for a moment. In verse 12, 3 12 in Joel, let the nations be stirred up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat for judgment. So it's a repetition put in the sickle verse 13 put in the sickle and bring out the harvest tread the winepress it is full all right why is it full because it signifies the measure of the wickedness of the nations that has been filled up okay so this harvest this har- so this is the this is the verse that is ta- that is quoted within within mark put in the sickle bring out the harvest tread the winepress but he doesn't quote the whole thing. But within this verse, though, it's the nation's sins that have come to uh, its fullness, right? And they're going to be judged. Verse 14, this judgment is the day of the Lord. All right, that, that's very important within Mark's uh, gospel. The judgment that's going to come upon the nations is the day of the Lord. The sun and moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. Right? This has already been said in chapter 2. Wonders in the heavens, sun to darkness, moon to blood. Stars withdraw their shining, verse 15. Number 5, the, the Lord roars from Zion. Heavens and earth are shaken, and, de- and you have the deliverance of his people, the people of Israel, verse 16, 316. We might summarize Joel like this. Well, first of all, we have these two. Two parallel sections that seem to say roughly the same thing, but in, in slightly different words. They describe the nations being gathered to the valley of God has judged, uh, and you have this judgment of the nations that's happening. You have also, at the, simultaneously, the restoration of Judah and Jerusalem. The captivity of Judah and Jerusalem has come. Now, so captivity is, a, is another word for exile, Right? So they're taken captive into Babylon or, or Egypt or wherever. God is going to restore the captivity of his people. This also, make a note, this is echoing Deuteronomy 30 verse 3 which is the new covenant. The Lord will restore your captivity. You will see wonders in the heavens and earth and these things will accompany what's going on and this is the day of the Lord. Now in Mark's gospel, by referring to this verse in 3.13, which is about the judgment of the nations because of their wickedness and the return of exile, uh, return of Israel from exile, Mark is bringing in this whole context of Joel. You say, well, that's complex. It is complex. But this is, this is the way in which these authors want us to search the scriptures. They want us to be Bereans, right? They don't want us just to read it and, and go about our business, right? It's not how we're supposed to read it. We're to read it and search them out. And I think, I think these parables actually, they say that to us. They say, search us out, right? Look at, at, at what is being quoted here. He quotes just a little bit of, of Joel and then and expects us to go look it up and say, what is this all about? He is saying that in some way the nations are being judged in the ministry of of Jesus, in the coming of the kingdom of God, which makes perfect sense, right? If God is becoming king over the whole world, there is a judgment of the other nations which vie for that that supremacy. And what is even more interesting is that this is being worked out through the gospel. In other words, we see how God is becoming king in the Messiah by reading the gospel and it involves a death where he becomes a servant and gives himself for his people. And this is the way the nations are being judged, right? This is, this is what is so mysterious about it all. He is saying that this whole conglomerate of images of judgment and deliverance is now coming upon Israel and will extend to the world. It may not look like much in the ministry of Jesus, Within this, within this story that we're seeing in Mark. It may not look like much, but like the sleeping and rising of one who has sowed seed, so the kingdom of God is working as Jesus speaks and as his ministry moves on. As the ground is producing a harvest of itself, so the kingdom is at work in its own subtle way. He doesn't tell us exactly how these things work, but he tells us a simile. It's like this. It's like this. At once, and very quickly, there will be a judgment. But in the midst of that judgment, there will be a deliverance. The judgment of the nations will in some strange way be deliverance for his people. We should not try to decouple these things within our interpretive frameworks. It's precisely this combination of judgment and deliverance that we will see working itself out in the Gospel of Mark itself. Like in chapter 13, which is the the apocalyptic chapter about the destruction of of the temple and and of Jerusalem, we have, in the midst of that destruction, the disciples are told, get out, flee, and they are delivered from the destruction. What is new within within this narrative, what's woven in, is that Israel's leaders become one with the nations and they will then be judged along with them. This is the incongruence that we sometimes feel when we're reading this text. At least I think that's what it is. It's that we don't get it how how most of the people, especially the leaders, but most of the people also end end up under the judgment. When God has said Israel will be redeemed, what does that look like? And... I suggest that this incongruence arises from the fact that w- we have not thought about the possibility that Israel's leaders and most of the people could be just like the nations, right? But this is exactly what has happened. And it, if, you, if you reread the scriptures, you'll see that this is the way it was orig- It always has been, essentially. You read Isaiah, there's a remnant that will be delivered. It's always this, this remnant that's going to be delivered. But when we, we come to the Gospels, we still have the same mindset of, oh, all Israel's going to be saved, which means every single person within Israel. And I don't think that's the way it is. What happens, I think, within these narratives is that the leaders and then the people who follow them are actually, they actually become one with the nations who are being judged. This is the real the real miracle of what took place as described in the gospels that at the end of of jesus's ministry you have you have jesus who was crucified he's raised from the dead but at the end of mark especially if you don't take the the last part of of mark you have the disciples as bewildered and confused and in go- in the gospel of luke they're saying this one was the one who was supposed to deliver Israel. And in John, they go back to fishing, right, thinking that this is dead. The real miracle is that out of this, out of this sowing, which Jesus Jesus says in, in chapter four here, out of this sowing, the kingdom of God would grow to such to such Uh, Links that here we are in America, thousands of miles away, talking about the kingdom of God and living in it. This is is a miracle. As the resurrection and the subsequent outpouring of the Spirit will, will demonstrate, the movement that began as the sowing of a few seeds, or as the seed the size of a mustard seed, will eventually grow into a tree under whose branches the beast of the field may dwell and in which the birds of the air may make their nests. This is precisely the point of the next parable, which we will get to next week, the parable of the mustard seed, where the kingdom of God grows from a tiny seed into a large tree. What we will explore next week, and you can, you can have a look at these if you... If you get a chance is Ezekiel 17, 13, 17, 23. So basically Ezekiel 17, 20 uh, through 24. And then uh, chapter 31, 1 through 8. And look for the, listen, for the, listen for the echoes there because they're um, in this two verse, three verse parable in, in Mark you get an echo from from really from all of these texts and then Daniel 4 20 through 22 and this we will explore next time and what I'd like to do is talk just a little bit about about what the kingdom is because we we get the idea in in our in maybe it's just our modern way of thinking about things that that because we we don't see Jesus sitting on a throne in Jerusalem that somehow the kingdom of God is not here in our midst. But, but I think to, do that, to say that is, is really to, to sell ourselves short and to say, say look, uh, we're just sitting and waiting. You know. But I think, the, and this is something we'll get into, I think within the gospels themselves, they, they basically say the kingdom of God has been inaugurated now let's get to work because there's work to do in the kingdom and this is how you will see the kingdom working itself out within the world it's not simply this otherworldly kingdom that, uh, that one day will show up it is but it's uh, it will show up to, to a greater extent but I think the message within the gospels is that look the kingdom of God has come and now you have been given the spirit now, this, is the, this is the role of the spirit is to work out on earth, what uh, what is going on in heaven? Right? All heaven obeys. All heaven is under the reign of God, and now it's our job to uh, to bring that about through the Spirit uh, on this earth. So we'll look at that next week.